If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Last week we began this chapter as we continue making our way through Luke's Gospel. And um, the intention was to do verses 1 through 13, but uh, on Saturday night as I was finishing up, there was just too much goodness in in verses 1 through 4, so uh, we just looked at those, and so we're picking up where we left off. And last week we looked at Jesus' disciples asking him, teach us how to pray. And we said that that was a question that at some point all of us probably feel like asking. And if we don't, then we should feel like asking. Because most of us do not pray uh, the way that we should. And this morning what we want to see specifically is that very often we don't know how to pray because we don't know who God is. And because we don't have a right understanding of God, then we don't have a right understanding of prayer. D.A. Carson says there's typically three ways that people view God and therefore view prayer. He says, first of all, there are those that see God as if he's a reluctant stranger. He's someone whose hands, uh, which hold gifts of blessing, must be pried open for the smallest thing to come into our lives from heaven. So others see God as a malicious tyrant who plays games with humanity, gleefully trading pain for the gifts that we request of him. And finally, there are those who see God as a heavenly father who generously and lovingly gives the gifts of His kingdom to those who ask. This morning we have to ask, what is your view of God? And therefore your view of prayer. How do you think about Him and therefore how you talk to Him? We'll see that Jesus wants His disciples to be people of prayer. He wants us today to be a people of prayer. But in order to do that, we must first know who God is. And that is, in fact, how Jesus encourages His disciples in these words. He shows them that, indeed, God is a Father to His people, a loving and generous Father who delights to pour out His gifts to them. So I encourage you to follow along. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation." And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God bless the reading of his word this morning. In these verses, verses 5 through 13 specifically, we want to see how we should pray because of who God is. And what I hope will take place is an encouragement to your heart so that if you know God, you will afresh see him as father and delight and desire to call out to him. And if you do not know God as father, 
If you do not know him in a saving way through Jesus Christ, then through the blessings that come and through the message of Christ himself this morning, you will come to have faith in him. So what should we see here? What does Jesus teach us about prayer? First of all, he says that we should pray with impudence, that we should pray with impudence. If you don't know how to spell that, it's in verse 8. The bigger question might mean, what does it mean? What does it mean to pray with impudence? Well, different translations actually say different things at this point. That word is rendered as importunity, persistence, shameless persistence, and even shameless audacity. And part of the reason why the translators are struggling a bit is because they're trying to get just the right sense of the word. And I really think that the ESV does get it right here. Persistence is not enough. The man is impudent. That is, he is, he is shamelessly presumptuous in his request. Listen again to what uh, Jesus says in this parable. He says, which of, you has a friend that, uh, who ha- which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now remember, this parable is about Israel in the first century. So for us, uh, you know, midnight doesn't seem that big of a deal. You know, the party's just getting started for some of us. But they don't have electricity. So the sun goes down, they might light an oil lamp or a candle for a little bit. Basically, they're going inside, they're going to bed, and midnight is the middle of the night for them. Because when the sun rises at five or six, everybody's getting up and going. Moreover, this is a culture where hospitality is a really important thing. When someone comes over, it doesn't matter how meager it may be, you put something in front of them to serve them and to show that you are a gracious host and that you value their company. You know, there are still uh, cultures today where this is an important part of, um, uh, of people coming and arriving and visiting, this idea of hospitality. It was very much a part of my, my grandparents' generation. Whenever we would go to see uh, my grandmother, uh, the, 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 it was, hi, how are you? There was a kiss, and then it was sit down, and then it was, what do you need? Do, do you need a Coke? Do you need a snack? Do you need a dessert? Do you need coffee? Well, what do you need? That, that was, that was the, the kind of southern mindset that she grew up with. Uh, not so much in other places, but particularly in uh, Middle Eastern or, or, or third world cultures, it, it's, more, it, it's more than that. You know, you might come over and I might say, well, I'll, I have nothing to drink, but I'll pour you some ice water and give you some ice. Well, that'd be a, that was, that's not good enough in those cultures. So, for example, one of the times we were on a, a mission trip among the Tamajic in Africa, uh, it was just the, the missionary and myself. We went in to visit the, with this family, and this guy was very happy to, to see the missionary who he knew well, and he shook his hand, and he asked all the questions about how his family was and how his, how his animals were, and then he says, uh, he says, wait here, I'll be back, and he's out the door. And the missionary was, was about to say, no, don't worry about it, and he looked at me, and he kind of chuckled, and he said, he doesn't have any tea, so he's going to go borrow some. It was unfathomable for this guy that we would come and visit and he would not spend at least an hour and a half with three rounds of tea making conversation, being a good host. That that was the culture in which it was. And likewise here, it was unthinkable, it was unfathomable for this guy to have a friend come over and have nothing to give him to eat. It's in the middle of the night, it's the first century, they're asleep and yet... Here is a man traveling in need of lodging. He needs a place to stay. And now this man has an obligation as a host to give him bread and he has nothing to give. He would have likely have been going first thing in the morning to the market to buy some bread and bring it back home for his family. They have nothing. So what does he do? He goes to the neighbor's house. He goes to his friend in the middle of the night and he begins knocking. He says, hey, wake up. Wake up. I've got company and I need three loaves of bread. Get up. 
Jesus says of a man who has a neighbor like that, he says, will he not answer from within? Do not bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Very often back then, again, first century, everyone slept on mats in one big room in the floor. So it's not like they're on this, you know, this big king-size bed or anything. They're just, they're just all together uh, in one room asleep. And this guy's knocking in the middle of the night, yelling about bread. The friend says, you've got to be kidding me. He says, look, we're all tucked in bed. We're asleep. It's the middle of the night. You know the little one is just now sleeping through the night. What do you want me to do? Get up and unbolt the door and wake everybody up. I'm not going to do it. Go away and come back in the morning. But Jesus says, what does he say? Verse 8, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Just because he's friends with him doesn't mean it's, it's reason for this guy to tiptoe through a minefield of limbs on the floor just to unbolt the door and give this guy bread. But he says, I will tell you though, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, because of the fact that he's there at midnight, he's, he's barging in, he's being audacious in his request because he's not going to give up until this guy comes and gives him what he needs, he says he's going to get up and he's going to give the guy the bread. Because of his presumption, his blatant impudence, he will give this guy what he wants just to shut him up and get him to go home. And Jesus says, that's how you should think about prayer. That's how you should come before God in prayer. He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. How can we pray this way? It's not because God is like the neighbor. It's not because he's going to get irritated with us from heaven and just say, fine, take whatever you want. No, it's just the opposite. God is not like the neighbor. He's not stingy. You're never going to wake him up from sleep. You're never going to bother him with your requests. Go home and read Psalm 34 this afternoon. God loves to hear and answer the prayers of his people. And so Matthew Henry in his commentary is right when he says, We prevail with men by importunity because they are displeased with it, but with God because he is pleased with it. In other words, God delights when you come before him and ask. He loves to give gifts to his children. The question is, though, what does that look like practically? Oh, to, tomorrow morning when you get up, what does it look like to pray with importunity, with impudence before God? Well, let me give you three things. First of all, it means that you should pray immediately. You should pray immediately. You notice the guest shows up. This guy doesn't wait till morning. Boom, right in the middle of the night, he's there. He's going to the neighbor's house. There's no hesitation in this man's request, and there should be no hesitation in our praying before God. There used to be this terrible bumper sticker. Um, you know, whatever happened to bumper stickers? They used to be like all, all over the place, and now nobody has them anymore. Probably because half of them were, were garbage anyway. But anyway, uh, this one in particular was garbage. It said, when all else fails, pray. When all else fails, pray. And I'm thinking, no, 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 that's the opposite. You, before you try anything else, you stop and you pray. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus is teaching here. That's our attitude. Before we think, well, now how can I figure this out? We just stop and we say, God, we need some help. We need some help. One of the things that, that I've been trying to do, whether it's here at church or it's on the phone or meeting with someone, the minute that somebody says to me, you know, I really want you to pray for me because I've got this issue coming up. I want to just stop and pray. You know why? Because I've discovered Jesus is absolutely right. The flesh, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I forget. Someone will say to me, you know, be praying about this on Thursday. I got this going on. I say, absolutely be praying for you. And I say bye. And I see him on Sunday. And I think I forgot to pray on Thursday. 
And then I feel bad because I didn't pray. I didn't keep my word. It wasn't that I was trying to deceive them. It was like, yeah, sure, I'll pray. I meant to, and I just forgot. So one of the things I do now is, oh, you want, let's just pray right now for that thing. And, and I will do my best to remember it on Thursday. Let's just stop and pray right here. That's one reason to pray immediately. But you know, there's, a, there's an even greater reason that I think Jesus is driving us to, and that is we need God more than we can possibly imagine. Most of us pray so little because we think we've got it. We've got it. We, we, we sort of coast in life and we only ring him up when we have a bad day or something really terrible falls in our lap. But Jesus wants us to understand life itself is hanging in the balance. Life itself is hanging in the balance. We, we desperately not need God and therefore we should go to him immediately. You don't need a special place to pray. You don't need a special posture. You don't need a ritual. Just stop and pray. Pray immediately for whatever the need is. That's what Jesus is telling you to do. Be impudent in your prayers. Be completely shameless in barging into heaven and begging for help. But more than that, you should not only pray immediately, you should pray persistently. You should pray persistently. Later in Luke, we will see Jesus telling another parable. And Luke says he told this so that his disciples will learn to pray and not give up. Likewise here, Jesus doesn't expect us to pray once and then forget about it. That's not, what, that's not what impudent prayer looks like. The man didn't go away when the neighbor said go away. He says, no, he was persistent. He says, I tell you, I tell you, this man was answered because of his impudence, because he kept it up, because he was shameless. He was persistent. That's why the guy got up. And listen to this promise from Jesus about God. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For whoever asks receives the one who seeks finds and the one who, to the one who knocks it will be opened. You, you have this ongoing, repeated asking, seeking, knocking. And what's more, if you've got the New Living Translation or a Holman Bible, you'll notice it says keep on asking and you'll receive for what you ask for. Keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's because all of the verbs in the original describe a continuous action. It's not ask once and seek once and knock once. It's you keep doing the action. And that's the imagery of the guy at the door. He's like, I'm not leaving until you open the door and give me some bread. I'm here. That's Jesus' point. And so he tells you when you pray, you keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking. J.C. Ryle once wrote, what I think we all know to be true, he says it is far more easy to begin a habit of prayer than to keep it up. Thousands take up a habit of prayer for a little season after some special mercy or special affliction and then little by little become cold about it and lay it aside. To this he says, Jesus here teaches that we must resist this feeling whenever we feel it rising within us. Let us resolve by God's grace that however poor and feeble our prayers may seem to be, we will pray on. I think he's exactly right. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us here. Why should we do this? It's not because we're going to force God's hand. It's not because we have to wear him down like a child to a parent who finally gives in and says, okay, leave me alone. Just go get the cookie. That's not the point. Okay, that's not the way it works with God. Rather, rather, it helps us, it helps us to know that we are truly dependent upon God. It helps us to, 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 to come to a place where we truly believe God's going to give us the good things that He has promised. We should pray immediately. We should pray persistently. And third, if we are to pray with impudence like this man, the way Jesus tells us we should, then we should pray needfully. 
we should pray needfully. Notice what the man asks for. He doesn't come asking for something extraordinary or extravagant. He's simply begging for bread. It's something that he needs to fulfill his obligation as a host. I think one of the reasons we feel so hesitant in prayer often is because we so rarely ask for what we really need. Isn't that what what James says in chapter 4? He says, you don't have, number one, because you don't ask. You, You go through life, you never ask God for anything, so he doesn't give you anything. But he says, when you do ask, you ask it wrongly. You ask to satisfy your self-centered desires rather than for the things that you need, the things that will glorify God in your life. And so we don't have things. But what if we prayed for what God promised to give us? What if we prayed for the things that God wants to give us? You see, nowhere does God give us a blanket statement that just says, okay, whatever you want, just ask and I'll give it to you. Now, some will quote John 15 and say, oh, wait a minute, he does. And John 15, 7, ask whatever you want and it will be done to you. And I, and I say, sure, but read the rest of the verse. Jesus, Jesus caveats it right at the beginning. He says, if you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And the Apostle John explains what that means. In 1 John 5, he says, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. So do you want your prayers to be answered? Then don't just throw on in Jesus' name at the end, actually praying in Jesus' name. Pray for the kind of things that Jesus prayed for. Pray for the kind of things that would bring honor to Jesus' name if they were given. Pray for the kind of things that he says he wants us to have in our life by abiding in him, which is a fruitful life that glorifies his heavenly Father. Practically speaking, what what, what does that look like? Just, Just an example. This week I was talking with someone about their illness. The question is, do I pray that God would heal them? And the answer is, yeah, I do. But I don't pray that the same way as I pray other things because I don't know if God wants to heal them. I mean, we see both by example and by principle that God doesn't always want to heal us from our illnesses. He doesn't always want to alleviate all pain. Sometimes disease becomes a good gift from God whereby He accomplishes great things in our life and the lives of others. So I don't know exactly how to pray when it comes to that person's healing. But here's one thing I am absolutely confident in. God desires all of his children to be holy. He desires all of them to experience sanctification, a continual growth in godliness before him. So I can be bold, I can be confident, I can even be shameless in praying over and over again. God, whether or not you heal this person, use this sickness to bring them closer to you. Use the circumstances of their life to make them more holy before you. Use this thing that is not fun, that is seemingly not helpful, to be helpful, to allow them to experience sanctification before you. I can pray that all day long with supreme confidence that God wants to answer that request. This is why we can be impudent in prayer, constantly banging on heaven's door with our requests if we're asking for the very things that God promises to give us, the kinds of things that Jesus tells us to pray for in the first four verses. He says when we pray in that way, then everyone will receive what they ask for. Everyone will find what they're seeking. Every door will be opened upon which they knock. So John brought us 
One of the founders of Southern Seminary says this, one may be a truly industrious man and yet remain poor in temporal things, but one cannot be a truly praying man and yet poor in spiritual things because God loves to give those things to those who ask. Jesus shows us that God is willing to hear and answer and that we should therefore pray with impudence. But he also says, secondly, that we should pray with assurance, that we should pray with assurance. What are we assured of? God and his willingness to hear. But more than that, we are assured of God and his willingness to take care of us. How can we be assured of that? Because God is the father of his people. That's what Jesus teaches us here in the following the following verses, verses 11 through 13, that he is the father of his people, specifically that he is a loving father, that he is a loving father. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he lays an egg, will give him a scorpion? Asks for an egg, rather. Hopefully he doesn't lay an egg. If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? will the heavenly father give? You know, on more than one occasion, I've I've been talking with a Christian. They said, you know, I was telling someone about God and I was telling them about about God loving us and sending Christ to die for us and about him adopting us as his children, about him being a heavenly father and immediately the brakes on the conversation. And the person began to either get sad or get angry and, and resented that God was to be a father to them. And when the person asked, well, why that bothered them so much, it became evident that their father was not kindly or good to them. That their experience of fatherhood was terrible. And the reality is, we live in a sinful world and sin pervades everything, including human families. And there are mothers and there are fathers who do not live as they should, who do not care for and love their children the way that God intends. And so for many, this idea of the fatherhood of God can actually be off-putting. It can have the opposite effect that it is supposed to have. But here's the thing that we need to remember. God is not basing his relationship with us on what he sees in the world from human fathers. From all of eternity, God has been a father to his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, when he creates family, when he creates a husband and a wife that produce children and become father and mother, he is looking at himself and his relationship to his own son and saying, this is what I want to echo. This is what I want to reflect in humanity. My fatherhood, my perfect and supreme fatherhood. So when a father blows it, when a father fails, God is not looking at that bad example and saying, well, I'm kind of like that. No, no, no. What we see is that that father failed to follow the perfect example that he was creating to follow, namely God himself. Likewise, Jesus is here reminding us that when we come into God's family, we do that when we obtain salvation from God through faith in Christ. And when we do that, we gain not just a glorious God, but a father beyond all measure. The truest of all fathers who has ever been or ever will be. And that assurance of the fatherhood of God, of his adoption of us as sons, should give us assurance in prayer. 
We were gone, had an appointment with somebody important, someone that was uh, important enough to have a secretary and maybe multiple doors that you had to go through to get to that person. You know, you, you, you kind of go in and there might be a waiting room there and, and then uh, maybe you sign in or maybe you just go to the secretary and say, I'm here because I have an appointment and they say, be seated. And they, you know, they, they buzz the person, say, so-and-so is here. And they say, you can wait just for a minute and you're kind of sitting there cooling your heels. And finally, and the secretary gets a buzz and she says, you can go on in now. And she opens the door and you go in and you meet with this person. Well, imagine if you were that important person's child. Now, assuming they didn't have an important meeting going on, you don't, you don't go in and tell the secretary you're there. You say, hey, good morning, and you're at the door. And you're not knocking to see if it's okay. You knock once and you're in the door saying, I'm here. And it's okay. The, 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 the important person, whether it's a mother or father, glad to see you because you are their child. And so it is with God. There's, there's no formality. There's no hesitancy. There's no, will he want to hear from me or not? Of course he wants to hear from you. Because in Jesus Christ, we have the adoption as sons, the full rights and privileges of going before our God in heaven and calling out to him as our father and saying, God, you love us and we love you and now we need something. We need this to be your children in this sinful world. Please give it. And we do, we do not come because we know we've been good enough to earn his adoption, his love and his affection. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. He, that the Bible teaches from beginning to end that we have everything in the world against us when it comes to our relationship with God. We are born with sinful hearts and therefore we live sinful lives and we say sinful things and we think sinful thoughts. There is no part of us that is not corrupted by sin's nature. But here's the thing. God loves sinners. He sets his affection on sinners. And so he sends Christ to take the place of sinners. So when Jesus comes and he takes on flesh and he becomes human like us, he lives a perfect life. And then through no fault of his own, because he doesn't deserve it, he is nevertheless hung like an ordinary sinner on a cross. And more than just the physical brutality of crucifixion, it has been the plan from the beginning of time that when he hangs on that cross in place of sinners, identifying with him in all of their fallenness, though he himself is perfect, he bears God's wrath against sin. So that when he dies and he comes back to life, he does so as now the perfect Savior, the one and only mediator between sinful people and a holy God. So when I look to God and I see the perfections of His holiness, when I see the beauty of His glory and I think I cannot approach, I cannot be with Him, though He says I will be judged for my sins and I want to worship and serve Him, I can't because I'm too sinful. He says, look at my Son Christ. He came and lived a life that you will never be able to live, a life of perfect obedience. And he died de a death under my wrathful hand. And death did not hold him. Death did not stop him. He was raised back to life. So now when I trust Christ to be my Savior, when I trust Christ to bring me to God, God says, now the righteous life of my Son, I count as if it is your life. And the death that he died under condemnation for sin, I count as your punishment. It was your death on the cross and he was raised back to life with the promises that one day I too will not be held down by death but will be raised up incorruptible with a body fit for eternal fellowship with God. And he says, because of my son Christ, though your nature is sinful and not like mine, 
I will adopt you into my family and I will begin giving you a new nature because I put my spirit within you. I give you my name and let you bear it and I promise to love you forever as my child. That's what gives us assurance in prayer. It's not that I did my devotions really well this week and therefore God will be pleased to hear from me. No, it's I have a father who loves me and who's forgiven me in Christ. God is not just a loving father though. He's also a giving father. He is a giving father. In the illustration of the father and the son, Jesus says people are inherently sinful. Did you catch that? He says you who are evil. He assumes that people are evil, but what he also knows is that doesn't mean that we always do the most evil we could possibly do. Just because I'm a sinner, it doesn't mean I sin as much as I possibly can sin in any given moment. No, he says even sinful fathers can give good gifts to children. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. If he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will a heavenly father give? If even bad fathers can give good gifts to children, just think about the father who loves you. If you ask for a fish or an egg, you're not going to get a snake or a scorpion. But you know, the opposite is true as well. I think it was Calvin who said, God does not answer the prayers as we, as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser than we are. In other words, there are times when we think we're saying, God, give me a fish, God, give me an egg, and really what we're praying for is a snake and a scorpion. We think we need this thing. We think this is going to make our life better. But God in his wisdom is looking down from heaven and says, no, no, you don't want that. That's not going to be good for you. It looks good, but it's going to be terrible. It's going to ruin your life. And so he doesn't give us what we ask for. And we tend to be like spoiled kids and get upset and pout. God, why won't you just give me this thing? Why won't you give me this thing? And all the while it's because God says, it's not good for you. It's not good for you. And there are times when I have to give my kids medicine. And they say, oh, this tastes terrible. I don't want to do it. I don't like it. And I say, I know, but you're going to open your mouth and chug because this is what you need. This is going to get rid of the infection flowing through your body. And there are other times when they say, I want that second piece of cake. I want that third bowl of ice cream. And I say, no, because you're going to have a tummy ache. It's not good for you. I can give and I can withhold. And it's because I'm trying to be a good father who both loves and is generous to his children. And God is the same way. We may ask for something that harms us and we can get frustrated when we don't get it, but remember that God is a father. And when we do that, we can remain confident in prayer. We, can't, we, won't, we won't succumb to the belief that, well, he's never given me anything I've asked for. Why, why is he even listening? No, maybe you're asking for the wrong things. Maybe he knows you better than you do and he wants what's best for you. In fact, Jesus says that God will always give us the very best gift possible. Look at the end of verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now some of you might hear that and feel a little disappointed. You're thinking, that's not the gift I wanted. It's not what I had in mind. But you need to understand that this is the best thing that God can give us. For God's own spirit is the Holy Spirit. God, the the Holy Spirit is not a thing or an it, it, he is a he. He is God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so the Father gives the Spirit to you when you put your faith in Christ. In fact, it's not when you put your faith in Christ in the sense of, I believe and I get the Spirit. It's just the opposite. He he sends the Spirit to open your eyes to the gospel, 
that you might believe. That he opens the, your, your eyes to your own sinfulness so you can see your need. And then he sends the Spirit to, to grant the, the, the response of faith to this truth. My sin, God's grace, I must believe. It's in fact the Spirit that comes to give life so that we can put our faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what the scripture teaches. Moreover, in Galatians 4, Paul says it's actually by that gift of the Spirit that we call out in prayer to God as Father. So when we are saved, we have the Spirit. We do not gain more of Him as life goes on, but we can be more sensitive to His presence. We can hinder His work by our sin, or we can yield to His work in our life when we take up His sword, the Word of God, and allow Him to do spiritual surgery on our hearts. So why do we want the Spirit? Because Romans 8, He's the one that assures us of God's love. John 14, He is the one who teaches us the truth of God's Word. And John 17, He is the one who sanctifies us by that Word. Galatians 5, He is the one who works within us to bear fruit of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 4, He's the one that opens our eyes to the life-transforming, life-giving glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says that God will give the Spirit to those who ask, He is promising that God will give His power, His presence, and His intimate fellowship. The reality is we need desperately the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And notice what Jesus promises to those who pray and ask, to those who come with impudence, to those who come boldly, shamelessly asking again and again and again. He says God will surely give this good gift to His children. George Mueller was born in Prussia, but lived much of his life in England where he ran a ministry called the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. You can tell he lived in a different time than, than us. The purpose of that ministry was to aid the church by providing Bibles and training in the Bible. And through his ministry, Mueller provided multiple day schools for children and adults in locations, various locations throughout uh, the area of Bristol, England, where he was. He supported missionaries, he provided Bibles, and he ran five orphanages. Without government support, Mueller received and distributed approximately $2.7 million to fund that ministry over his lifetime. In today's terms, that would be $148 million. What makes Mueller's achievement so amazing is that he never asked anyone for money. Never once solicited funds. He simply prayed. He prayed to his heavenly father when he saw the needs around him in Bristol, England and around the world. He prayed to his father that he might have whatever resources God would entrust to him to do ministry. And he kept doing that again and again and again and again. And God opened the, head, the, the floodgates of heaven and rained down blessings upon him. Even today, Mueller is known for his persistence and faith in prayer. He prayed and he never gave up. One time, Mueller prayed for one of his friends to be saved, and he wasn't saved. So he kept praying for his friend to be saved. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He prayed for over 60 years, right up until his death. Lord, save this man. Now, I imagine if that was us, we'd have given up after a couple of years. Maybe 10 at our best, possibly 15. I mean, come on, Mueller. What, what, what shamelessness, what audaciousness. Obviously, God doesn't want to save this man. Just stop praying for him. But for 60 years, Mueller was praying and praying and praying, and then Mueller died. 
and the man was saved in answer to his 60 years of prayer. And here's the thing. Mueller was just a man. He's no better, no worse, no different than us. But here was the reason why God saw fit to bless him. He actually believed God loved his children. He actually believed that God loved to answer their prayers. And he actually prayed for the things that God wanted to do in the world to make his name glorious. Jesus is clear, if we are his disciples, we don't need to be fearful when we pray. We don't need to be hesitant. We don't need to wonder if God's going to listen to us. Jesus' disciples can pray with this assurance. God loves us and will always give wisely the things that we need for life in this world. Father, with that encouragement, we do come before you now. We come before you and pray and we acknowledge, God, that that we need you. Father, we need you this morning for life and breath. But God, we especially need you for spiritual life and growth. God, we need you to fill us with your spirit. We need that precious gift of our salvation so that we will continually grow to be the people that you desire us to be and bring glory to the name of your son by whom we are saved. Father, we pray this morning for those that may be here, may not be a Christian, that you will open their blind eyes to the truth of the gospel of Christ who stood in their place to be their salvation. God, may they trust him. And Father, I pray for us who do believe, God, regardless of where we're at in our life of prayer, God, we can surely grow more. And so God, remind us of these encouragements that Jesus gives. Remind us of this teaching, Father, that that more and more again and again, we might shamelessly come before your throne, asking for the very things that you desire to give us, God spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places that your kingdom might be advanced in this world, that sinners might be saved and the saved might be sanctified. God, we ask these things knowing that in doing so we are praying in Jesus' name. Amen.